game changers. Sandy, it is so good to see you. <laughs> this is awesome, Vicky, man. This is really cool. Okay, so for those of you out there who don't know, I've known Sandy since 80, the 80s. Okay, so you're starting to tell me. So we first met, I was booking the Rock and Roll Cafe, and you came in with? With Gary Silver, who was a solo artist, a kind of a Springsteen-esque oh, kind yes. of solo artist. And we, mm -hmm. we used to play there and jam there with BAC, with Tommy Burns, who went ended up going with Billy Joel, and and Louis Appel, who's R.I.P., no longer with us, but he was, we used to, it Tony was- Tony Bruno. Tony Bruno, too. <laughs> That's awesome. And he was, I think he was with Joan for a little while, too. I think he was. They they also, they, Tommy was with that one, Tell It To My Heart. Taylor Dane. Taylor Dane, right. right. Long That's, Island. That's who he was with at the time. So how, okay, let's go back. So- I I don't know this story. So I know you you were you grew up in Staten Island. How did you go from Staten Island boy to play in this kind of rock and roll? Okay, well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to condense it as much okay. as possible. Um, I moved to LA in 1976 to get to get my first big break. Staten Island. I was doing bar bands and playing blah blah blah. Oh, are you playing? Are you playing drums your whole life? I'm like, playing drums. I'm playing drums since I'm 14. I got my first drum set when I was 14. Why? Um, I got a little toy drum when I was three or two and a half, and I never let it out of my sight. I loved the fact that I used to dance. My older sisters would play Jerry Lee Lewis and 50s rock and roll. They were older, so they played 50s stuff. Right. But I didn't get my first drum set till about a year after the after I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And that when I saw how the girls reacted to that performance, I said, "Man, I don't know what's going on there, but I." I want someone I want to be part of that so that lit the fire and then right. I played for about an additional 10 years like toiling around on the road in bar bands six six nights a week five sets a night and whatever um are you going to school or did did, did you did, did you finish school yeah, I finished school. I finished mm -hmm. high school. I went to St. I graduated St. Peter's Boys High School in mm -hmm. Staten Island. I went mm -hmm. for two years at uh, what used to be called Staten Island Community College, but it's now mm -hmm. it's called City College in New York, and it's based on Staten Island. I lived on Staten Island for you know from when I was ten. I was born in Manhattan, lived, moved to Staten Island, the country, and then I grew up. <laughs> but anyway, so when wait, I wait, yeah. how did your parents feel about you being a drummer? <clears throat> Well, funny story is that my dad passed away when I was 11 before I oh. started playing drums. But my mother was always very, very supportive, very supportive mm -hmm. of me. And she used to tell me that when, when my dad took my mom to like the Academy of Music or the Palladium <clears throat> or the Paramount to see J Billy, uh, Tommy Dorsey or whatever, right. he used to always be... be on the side of the stage watching the drummer. My dad always loved drumming. Gene Krupp, uh -huh. Buddy Rich were his idols, whatever. So it was kind of funny. I didn't know this at the time until after I started playing drums, but my dad was a big fan of drumming. So anyway, I after high school and college, I was still playing high school dances and clubs and bars. I started playing bars on Staten Island when I was 16, and then that moved to the city, different bars or whatever. And then I moved to L.A. in 76 to get my first big break in the music business. And um, 
nothing was really going on. I, uh, I finally got an audition with Rod Stewart, and the audition was at SIR. And uh, I made the mistake of bringing my own drums when there was backline provided. Okay, and- wait, you have to tell this story because I know this story. I read your book, Beat the Odds, <laughs> Business and in Life. So you have to tell this story. What were you thinking, Sandy? What, what I was it about? I, I, you know, I really don't know what I was <laughs> thinking. I mean, in retrospect, I was maybe I was just a little insecure about playing. I knew mm. it was going to be a cattle call kind of audition where there was six of us in the lobby warming up on our laps with drumsticks. And one, the, the song I had to audition was Tonight's the Night. Okay. So one guy went in at a time and played 30 seconds of Tonight's the Night, and that was it. Gary Granger was in Rod's band at the time. Phil Chen, the bass player, was in Rod's band. And they and they all, you know, SIR is fully equipped. So the drums were there. Everything was mic'd, the PA. And it was my turn. I went out to the car to get my drums. The road manager goes, no, Sandy, them studio's this way. I go, no, man, I got to get my own drums. I can't play on somebody else's drums. Give it, given this is my first time I, was, I had to play on somebody else's drums. And maybe I was insecure. You know what, Vicky? I don't know what I was thinking. But I, I had to have my own drums. And the punchline is, is that it was a double bass drum set. And tonight's the night is just like a little, a little swingy shuffle. Like, so needless to say, I didn't get, I didn't get the gig. While I was in L.A. Wait, didn't you have an interaction with Rod? At, didn't he oh, say I did. I did. Well, I, brought, I brought my drums in and Rod Stewart goes, man. He looks around, everybody takes their guitars off. He puts the <laughs> mic down. He says, hey, man, those drums better sound good. <laughs> so I ended up playing 30 seconds of Tonight's Tonight. Everybody left the room and I knew I didn't get the gig. And I was as depressed as I ever was in my whole life. While I was in L.A., I met a, 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 one of my idols growing up in New York, Carmine Apice, Van, Vanilla Fudge. I used to go see them all the time, anywhere around New York City. Right. I told him about the audition. He said, don't worry, Sandy, you can use my name on a reference. This is not going to be your last opportunity, whatever. I ended up telling him, I said, Carmine, you should go down for that gig, man. I don't think anybody anybody uh, got the gig yet. And he says, well, you got management's number? And I didn't have management's number, but I had the guitar player's number, Gary Granger. So I gave Carmine the, the, Gary's number. He goes down and gets the gig. Mr. Rockstar, and that's one of the things I talk about in my presentation is that Mr. Rockstar drummer and Carmine, not only Vanilla Fudge, but he played with Ozzy and all of this. Rockstar drummer gets the biggest gig by his own admission, the biggest gig in his life from a Mr. Nobody at the time. Wait, did he play with with Rod? It was was it after Beck Bogart? It was. Yeah. It was after Beck Bogart. It was after BBA, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was after now I was a big fan of BBA. I was a big fan of Cactus. All oh, wait, how did you meet Carmine? How did that relationship start? I we met I met him at a party in LA, like a, just a random party in LA and, and told him about how, how much of a fan I was and he kinda took me under his wing kind of thing. Um you know, I, I was rehearsing at SIR with another band and he ended up coming to see me. You know, I invited him into the rehearsal to see me play. So he saw, saw me play and he just we took a liking to each other. And, and basically we're two Italians, two drummers from New York City in L.A. So he uh, if you read the, the little testimonial in the beginning of my book, Carmine wrote, hey, thanks for the biggest gig of my life, Sandy. So is a lesson there that you never know who actually you're talking to. You always be respectful of everybody because it can come back and really reward you, the universe works wonders in that way. How did you learn that lesson, Sandy? Was your mother that way? Were you brought up that way? How, how, because I know you're a big believer in, in karma and a higher power and all that stuff. Where did you get that from? 
Um, I guess it was from my parents. I remember my dad telling me at a very young age, hey, don't, you know, Sandy, when you go out in the world, don't ever do or say anything that will bring disgrace to the Gennaro name. Don't ever let anybody speak negatively about the Gennaro name. You treat everybody with respect, no matter what color they are, no matter what language they speak and whatever. So that was the basis of it. Mm -hmm. In addition to the fact that my mother and my mother especially was a staunch Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I went to Catholic grammar school. I went to an all boys Catholic high school, um, went to church every Sunday. I was an altar boy. So that that was basically my my up on my upbringing and and uh you know that that's basically if you ask me where where the seed was planted and feeling that way and my sisters are the same way now until this day my my parents are gone but so that that's that's how that's how it started that's that's the way that's my foundation right there was what i the conversations i heard around the dinner table and you know you have kids you know that they are they're a product of our conversations around the dinner table when they're four Absolutely. or five and six years old even mm -hmm. when you think they're not listening they're listening so be careful what you say around the dinner table because it sticks because a kid's brain is like a fertile it's like fertile soil you put seeds in it it's going to grow well, what does your daughter do i know she's 28 like harry what's her uh she, she uh, she graduated Belmont University, majored in the music business, and she started interning for management companies as part of the curriculum of Belmont. And she met a lot of management people, and she ended up going on the road as a tour manager. She's a drummer and a bass player, but <laughs> she wanted to be on the business side. So she's um, a tour manager. She she uh, tour managed Leanne Womack, a country star. Fabulous. This other, this other string band called the uh, Old Crow Medicine Show. Now she's with a band based in New York. She just got off the road. Tomorrow we're picking her up at the airport um, called Sleigh Bells. And that's a little, that's a cool little thing because my daughter used to be big, a big fan of Sleigh Bells when she was like 13, 14 years old. She used to go, like I used to go see The Fudge. She used to go see Sleigh Bells and, and used to beg for the set list and get autographs and whatever. And then she ended up meeting them and she ended up being involved with her, their manager and now she's tour manager with them and they love her. So and that was awesome. That's a part of, of your whole thing too, which I really believe in, which is uh, visualize, actualize and make it happen, right? So- right. So, okay, so you're a kid, you watch the Beatles, you want to be a drummer, you're doing gigs, you're running around. What's, what's the, what, what, how do you break in? What, what's okay, the, this how is, do you become a professional? Okay, this is what happened as a result of the Rod Stewart thing and my conversations right. with Carmine. I decided to make one last effort in getting a gig and I ended up, you, Carmine gave me permission to use him as a reference. It's the only thing. And I, I sent uh, resumes to 50 managers of bands that I really, really liked. And one of them was the manager of Led Zeppelin. Peter Grant, his name was, based in England. All of Peter Grant's mail went to Swan Song Records in New York City to be forwarded to England. My resume, this is how the universe works, Vicky. My resume ends up on Steve, uh, Steve, Steve Weiss, who's the attorney for Led Zeppelin, his desk. It didn't get forwarded to England. His name wasn't even on it. He's inspired to open the resume. At that time, he's putting a band together around Michael Bolotin, formerly- Wait, then, wait, wait. Michael Bolotin? B-O-L-O-T-I-N. That was his original name before he became a solo artist and a, and a star. Steve Weiss, the attorney for Led Zeppelin, is, is shopping a tape of Michael and Bruce Kulick's songs around, to, around labels around New York to try to get them a band deal. 
right at now, labels are getting in touch with Steve Weiss. We want to see this band. We like the song. Steve Weiss needs now a drummer and a bass player to showcase this band in front of labels. My resume arrives right in that time period. He needs a drummer and a bass player. And so what's on your resume at this point, Sandy? Nothing. <laughs> there's, there's nothing. There, there's a, there's a, a, a photo stapled, a photo of that cockamamie double bass drum set stapled, stapled, and it had like drum lessons and lame music. But my only reference was Carmine. Now, this is the punchline of the story. Okay. Steve Weiss needs a drummer. He opens, his name ain't on it, opens my right. resume. He was about to throw it in the trash because it had an L.A. address. I lived in L.A. at that time, right? Had an L.A. address, and he was going to throw it in the trash. Turns the page and sees Carmine's name on it. Steve Weiss used to be the attorney for, Le uh, for, um, for, for Vanilla Fudge. Go figure. If I, if I could write that, I, would, I wouldn't have right. been able to think. You okay. couldn't construct it, yeah. So he calls Carmine. Carmine vouches for me. The next call, Steve Weiss makes his Tamina L.A., and I'm down and out as the press. None, none of the 50 managers called me back. <laughs> Steve Weiss called me back. I didn't even send it to him. Wow. Called me back, and he says, you want to audition for this band? I flew to New York, auditioned for the band on a strange drum set. And got the gig, and it was it was me, Michael Bolton. He changed his name to Michael Bolton after that uh, project. Uh -huh. But uh, Bruce Kulick was the guitar player, uh -huh. and Jimmy Haslip was the bass player. He ended up win winning a Grammy with uh, the Yellow Jackets, whatever. So I did two albums. That was my first big break. I ended up a couple of months later uh, doing. Wait, does a Michael have a hit while you're playing with him? No, no. no Blackjack is his first recording project. This okay. is before he went solo. Okay. Before anything that Michael did solo, his name was still B-O-L-O-T-I-N on that record. If you look at the Blackjack record, that's what it is. Right. So that was my first really major re record deal. And I was an equal partner in the band. And we did a rec We did our first record with Tom Dowd uh, at Criteria Studios in Miami. It was a big deal. Tom yeah. Dowd was like one of my idols, a producer idol. And I learned so much from him. Then that's the first domino. And then I'm rehearsing with Blackjack. I'm at a soda machine at, at the Full Tilt Studios on 30th Street. And I get a tap on the shoulder. Hey, were you playing drums just now in that room? And I said, yeah. He goes, you want to play on my record? You, you have a nice feel on your playing. It turned out to be Benny Mardonis. I played on his record. And off of that record came Into the Night, which went top 10 the single. And it was one of the only singles that went top 10 twice. Wow, really? Ago. Yeah, 1980 and again 1990. Why? What was uh, the it, resurgence? It, well, it started, it started, uh, people started requesting it at some, some label in the Midwest or something. Wow. It started getting airplay again, and Polydor re-released the single. Uh-huh. So, uh, so that was now all of a sudden, like maybe six or seven months after I was about to throw the sticks in the fireplace. And okay, I'll wait a minute. Did you speaking of sticks? By the way, if you order Sandy's book, a signed copy from his website, you get drumsticks like this. Okay, so, uh, so, uh, do you have to have day jobs during that? I mean, are you making enough money as a musician that you don't have to do anything else? Well, at that that point of Blackjack and Criteria Studios, yeah, that that was fine. I mean, when I was in L.A., I had to work at a record store. Okay, that's what I'm asking. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. When you know, in college, I was playing weekend gigs in bars. I lived right. at home. Yeah. You know, so uh, so in L.A., yeah, I had to take a couple of day jobs. I worked in a record store, mm -hmm. and I made I made a promise to myself. I said, 
on the plane to LA, I said, I don't want to play in a cover band anymore to make a living because that could be a rut. That could be you get used to the couple right. of hundred, four or five hundred dollars a week, and and it's hard to break that to sure. go to the all, all original band. But I decided, you know what? Even if I have to work a day job in a record store, I'll and I'll go on auditions for original bands at night. I don't want to. I don't want to do the, the cover thing anymore. So right, right. That was that was that. So the Benny Mardonis record, and then. Um, then that led to the uh, Pat Travers being involved with Polygram with Benny Mardonis was also on Polydor Records. Blackjack was on Polydor Records. I heard through the grapevine that Pat Travers was looking for a drummer in 19... 19- Who else was in Pat Travers when you were there? Oh, wait, so tell us how you got the gig. Well, that's how it, that's basically how I got the gig. Knowing the A&R people at Polydor, I, one, Jerry Jaffe called me and he said, hey man, don't say I, don't mention that, that I told you this, but I think uh, Pat, uh, Tommy Aldrich is about to leave the Pat Travers band or get fired or whatever. I don't want to start right. any rumors, but um, this was nineteen. 19- did you have to audition? I did. Okay. I did. Well, well, the thing is, I said he gave me man. Jerry Jaffe gave me management. Uh, Pat's manager num- manager's number at the time. His name was uh, David Hemmings, I think, a British guy. And uh, I called David Hemmings, and he goes, "No, we're not. We're not going to let Tommy go. Uh, but I'd like to meet you because you're in that friggin' band Blackjack that took off all our promotion people because they, they were on Polygram as well." So I went to meet David Hemmings, and, he, and be, leaving that meeting, he said to me, hey, here's a cassette of the live show from Travis's live show. You know, do what you want with it. So I went right. home without any promise of a call or an audition. I started rehearsing that stuff. And about two months later, I got a call from Pat's office yeah. saying, hey, do you want to come down to Orlando and audition for Travers? So I, I, I went, got the gig, and um, uh, just... Pat, uh, Tommy left or was fired or whatever the story is. And then Pat Thrall also left at the same time. That's when I met Pat Thrall right around then too. Yeah. Wow. And then, so, so I went off. Who else was in the band with you? Well, it was just Travers and Mars Cowling, the original bass player who I I fell in love with. And um, he was my scuba diving partner. We made friends until the day he passed away, which is about maybe three or four years ago. Which by the way, speaking of bass players, Lee Sklar's on and he just said, great story. Oh, thank you, Lee Sklar. I'm a big fan. I'm a very, very big fan. But my question for Lee, do you sleep with your beard outside the covers or inside the covers? <laughs> Lee, answer the question. <laughs> so, all right. So, okay. So you do that gig. How, how does that end? Why does that end? Well, it, it, it was uh, it was about two years. We did a lot of touring, headlining and opening act and whatever. Doc McGee ended up join, um, managing the band towards the end. Then it just kind of dissipated. Mm. Just nobody really got fired or, or whatever, but it just kind of dissipated. But on on that tour, and uh, this is the Dave in the Doorway story, on that on that Travers tour, it was towards the end of 81, early By 80. the way, Lee says, I take it off and put it in formaldehyde. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so on that tour. On that tour. After a Travis gig in Connecticut, hot, sweaty gig, I was in the dressing room. Everybody was on the bus ready to go to on an overnight drive. I was really in a hurry to get out of the dressing room. There's a guy standing physically in the doorway with a pen and a camera. I could have did the rock star thing and, and blew by him. I could have did the polite rock star thing and said, hey, buddy, I'm in a hurry. I can't. But I know. I, I always thought it was novel for people having value of somebody else signing their name on a piece of paper. I, used to I want carry- to ask you something. I want, I'm sorry to interrupt this. Story. Oh, no, interrupt did all you, you want. Have, did you ever have a hero when you were coming up 
that was nice to you. Did did anybody? I, I know Car Carmine is one. That's that's a good example, right? It was. It, it that's that's the one. That's the one I would say because I was his. He was my idol. I followed Vanilla Fudge. I followed his career. He did clinics. I remember he did a clinic on Kings Highway in Brooklyn. I went as like a sixteen year old, like <laughs> like with stars in my eyes. And it was there was two drum sets, and he. I raised my hand to volunteer. He was asking people to play something or another. And uh -huh. he, some time he gave me some, you know, critique on my playing. He signed a book for me. Realistic. Is that the art. first time that you had? Uh, that was the first interaction with Carmine in person. And I was, my heart was beating. I was like meeting my idol. Are you kidding? And he ends up being, a, you know, fast forward to now. He ate, ate spaghetti and meatballs in my house about a year ago when he was in Nashville. So he, we're very good friends. Yes. Uh, we talk all the time on the phone. But anyway, that was, that was the first person that was really, really nice to me. And I, I really valued that, the rock star. And he, like, spent time with me. A little. Do you think that that impacted you paying that forward? I think it did. I think it did. I mean, my upbringing, as I mentioned before, I always, I always uh, was brought up to respect other people. Huey's here. Sorry, Huey Carroll. Awesome. <laughs> it's the old days. Okay, I'm sorry. So anyway, um, I forgot where it was. But anyway, so you, were oh, yeah, telling me the day, you were telling me the doorway story. Okay, so I stopped and engaged the guy, and I, I signed an autograph. I mean, this goes back to when I was 15 walking around the mall with my mother. My mother, I used to dress like Led Zeppelin, like walking around the mall. You know what I mean? I, was, right. I, I acted as if. I wanted right. to be a star, whatever. And my mother used to say, why are you carrying that pen around with you, Sandy? He's, I said, well, Ma, in case anybody asks for my autograph. So I was always enthralled by that whole sense of autograph. So I said, you know what? This guy in the doorway is there to see the drummer. Travers is on the bus. Everybody's on the bus. He's there to see me. Wants my autograph? I'm thrilled. I'm right. not going to blow the guy off. So I engaged him, signed it, took a picture. And then he said, hey, man, I'm a bass player here in Connecticut. Can you get me a gig in New York City? I said, well, I don't, I don't recommend you if I can't hear you play. So here's my card. I gave him my card with my address and my phone number on it. Send me a cassette of your playing. This is 1980, 81. Send me a cassette of your playing. I'll see what I can do. He, he couldn't believe I was, you're going to give me your home number, your home. No problem. Just send me a cassette. I got to go. So I, I got a cassette a couple of weeks later when I was off the road. Nothing really happened. Three years later, two years oh, wait, later. Wait, wait, magic question. Did oh. you listen to it? I did listen to it, and I did, okay. at a good conscience, I did pass it on to some people. Okay. They all, they all passed on it. Okay. I did. It was, it was, it was cover. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. So anyway, he, about two and a half years later, it was like towards the end of the summer of, uh, 83, he, right. called, he goes, Hey man, we're doing our first record right now. I'm managing this girl. Now she's going to be the biggest thing in 1984. I want you to be in her band. Not only will you, your personality would fit perfect, but your playing style or whatever. And he come down in the studio. I, I can't join a baby band, Dave. Come on. <laughs> no, man, you don't understand. You were so nice to me in that doorway. I don't want you to miss this opportunity. So I went down to the, I think it was the hit factory or the, Nah. Hit Factory or the record plant won. And I, no, it was the Hit Factory. And I went and, and it was Cindy Lauper doing doing that first record. And I met her. And I, the first thing when, she, when I walked in that room, I said, and I laid our eyes on her, I said, she's going to demand an opinion from everybody. People are going to either love her or hate her. Mm. Uh, but she's, she's ain't gonna fly, she ain't going to fly under the radar. And then when she played me little bits of songs, like girls just want to have fun and she- Did you know as soon as you 
were in that that did you did you get a sense of I did okay, love or hate, but did you get a sense that there was something really special there? I did. I did. Her persona, yes, her voice, her persona, the way she talked to the engineer wasn't wasn't the you know the the you know the public uh, impression of like a ditzy girl. She right. wasn't ditzy at all. She may have that persona, but she knew exactly what she wanted on her, you know. For her whole her whole gig, she knew what she right. wanted, the, the, whatever. So, and I got that feeling when I heard some of the songs in conjunction with the persona and the character and the way she looked. And I felt that way when Benny Mardonis played "Into the Night" acoustic piano and vocal. Right. You know, and I said, "Man, it seems like I heard this song before, but I, I didn't." And so that's the material took me into Benny's gig. And the material plus the way Cindy looked took me into Cindy's gig. We started out trying to break girls just want to have fun on the road, small little club, wow. Winnebago tour. And, and then we played. So, the- Sandy, wait, what was that like? I mean, I would imagine that song. I mean, that's just magic. I would imagine that every time you played it, people having never heard it before would still go crazy hearing that song. Absolutely. It's a, it's become an anthem. I mean, come on. And she's still very active with diversity, women's rights, equality. I love that woman so much. And I give her <laughs> so much credit for, for sticking with it. And I'm, I'm going to make a prediction here that someday she's going to be in the Hall of Fame. There's, there's no doubt about she it. She better right. be in the Hall of uh, Fame. Of course. When, when, I, when I see some of, the, some of the acts, with all due respect, with some of the acts that are being nominated for the Hall of Fame, I'm going, what? What? But she's deser- deser- deserves. By the way, Karen uh, Brown is saying that Billy Idol wanted you back then, too. Was that the same time period? That was that was before I moved to L.A. I auditioned for Billy Idol and I, and I didn't get the gig. And I think it was because I had the wrong kind of haircut. But I'm not sure of that. Well, I know I'm Eric, not... his drummer now, and he's got the. He's got, yeah. It's more of a punk vibe than a rock and roll vibe. You know, Steve Stevens has got the rock and roll thing. But I don't I, you know, then Tommy Price played with Tom, with Billy right. Idol for a long time. And I'm still friends with Tommy. He lives in San Antonio now. I'm going to see him in, in a month or two. When I go there to speak, we're going to we're going to uh, get together. But fantastic. So, so that's um, go ahead, Vicky. So, all right. So so Cindy. So it's small. You start. Doesn't she like explode during that tour? Does she explode? We, I'll tell you what. What was okay. the impetus of that explosion? We're, we're playing clubs in, in in Winnebago, trying to break the record, mm-hmm. and then we're booked on uh, for to play on the MTV New Year's Eve Ball. This is when it was live, and wow. this is when they had three bands play or four bands play, and each band played in the New Year in a new time zone. So let's uh-huh. say there was there was scandal went on at midnight, right? Billy Idol went on at one to bring in New Year and Central Time. We went on at two a.m. to bring in Mountain Time, and I think I forgot who were the head Stray Cats or something brought it in in L.A. And we we got off. We Cindy and the band, I must say, killed it. We killed it. There's some there's some videos in on on uh, YouTube with of, of that gig. We get off stage, Dave Wolf, Dave in the doorway, who's Cindy's manager, says, hey, man, we're going to pick up the, the tour in the Winnebago uh, like January 4th or something. January 2nd, we get a call. Sandy, uh... pack your bags. Pack your bags. We're going to L.A. What? Yep. Based on our performance, Carson wants us. Tonight's show with Carson wants us. Solid Gold wants us. 
HBO special wants us, Dick Clark, American Bandstand wants us. We're all going to go to L.A. and do TV, and then we're going to do a live gig for all of CBS in L.A. So we packed our bags, and once we were on Carson, Vicky, that oh. was... Okay, now wait a minute. You have to stop because you have to tell your first Carson story, which is a oh, Come on. How did you get a you were on Johnny Carson before Cindy Lauper? How did, what was that about? Cindy? I was on Stump the Band with Johnny Carson. And <laughs> how this old is are you? I was uh I was uh in nineteen seventy six. Well how old was I? I was in my right, so you, was I fifty one, sixty one, seventy one. I, I don't I was about But you're 50, not like you're not your career had no, my career. I was in go. L.A. I was in my in L.A. 1976, trying to get my first the blackjack gig. My first gig was 79. So okay. I was in L.A. still in the process. But now I was such a big fan of Johnny Carson, especially when he played Stump the Band. I said in New York, I used to watch him all the time. Hey, if I was ever on Stump the Band, I know exactly what song I would play because I wrote the song. It was a song called. So anyway, I sent away for tickets. Went. On any random night, I go. I wish I had the video. I wish you had the video to play now. That would oh, be awesome. Oh, God. So um, <laughs> I have the video and I use it in my presentations all the time. I'm going to put the link to it in, in the liner notes after the show. Okay. That, that'd that be great. Um, so, anyway, first, I'm the first person he picked. Hey, I, I assume you're a gentleman because he, he, I had hair that I had like Eddie, early Eddie Van Halen hair like that. I might, but you know what? So I sang the song "Tweezers of a Love uh, of Your Love" and um, and we got a dinner for four. <laughs> so fast forward now, Carson. I'm in a green now. I'm there with Cindy in Burbank in the green room with Johnny Carson, and I said, "Hey Johnny, you remember being on me being on Stump the Band?" He goes, "Oh, how long ago?" I said, "Well, it was in '76. This is in 1984." He goes, "Ma, we've had a lot of people on Stump the Band. I'm sorry, Sandy." He goes, "What song did you sing?" And I said, uh, tweezers of your love. He went, are you the guy that gave the band the chords to the song? Because before, when, when Johnny interviewed me, he goes, what's the name of the song? I go, tweezers of your love. So the band tried to guess it. They weren't going to guess right. it because they wrote the song. And I go, for the, benefit, for the benefit of the band, it's G, A minor, D, G. So the was karma goes well. You suppose you, you think you think they know how to read? They don't know how to read. So I said, well, I thought they're all union. So it, it, I, Johnny was my straight man. I, I, I hysterical. It was uh, hysterical. By, by the way, Tommy Allen is on now, and he said you got him his first real tour. He's a solid oh, dude and a great. That's awesome. Tommy Allen from the Heart Right. from the Heart Right. No, from from China Club. Right. like this is like old. This is like our old everybody's around. This is crazy. It's awesome. It's awesome. Okay, so 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 you have that. Okay, where are we? Still in Cindy? Where are we? Yeah. So we're oh, yeah, still, we were in Cindy. Okay. And then um, and then we have Cindy. So and how then, did that? So how did Cindy? How, how long did you play with Cindy? And how did that come to an end? Well, I played. <laughs> I played with her. All of 84, part of 85. I think one of the last gigs we did was the 1985 American Music Awards. We played on it live. And Now, that had to be like a trip for you, too. Like all that. Oh, man. It, oh, are you kidding? I remember, <laughs> you know, going now I'm going back. And Cindy in 84 was the biggest thing on the planet. This is before Madonna, any anything like that. And we're right. playing the L.A. Forum and all of playing at the, you know, staying at the Sunset Marquee with Huey Lewis is in the pool and whatever. And um, it, it was is your awesome. life. Change? I imagine your life is changing. Your your life is changing with it. Is it? Absolutely. Well, how, how it, so? It, 
Well, you know what? It, I, I, you know, it's funny, Vicky. When you look back, it really changed my life a lot. That Cindy Lauper gig was the first really. I mean, I did arenas with Travers, but to have that kind of, she was such a media star, and she Huge. wanted, she wanted the band with her on interviews, MTV guest VJ, all of, the band was always around. It was just awesome. So that changed my life, but I didn't realize at the time how much it was changing my life. Now, when I look back, you're out of the situation. You're looking, you're looking at the forest from outside the trees, right? And you see that how how valuable that was and uh so after that i i ended up doing a favor for a friend i flew to germany and do the, did this record for this german band called craft and subsequently they asked me to do the tour in support of that record and um and uh, who did you open for with craft sandy queen oh yes I mean, what the fuck was that like it was, you know, it was just an, it was just the opening act. But I may not tell you, Vicky, it was one of the most memorable experiences. I got a picture. Of my, I got a whole shitload of memorabilia in my studio here. But uh, if we had more time, I'm going to do a Facebook live and take people around my studio and show memorabilia. But absolutely, Freddie, Freddie, Brian, you know, they sold out uh, soccer stadiums every single night, one or two, sometimes three nights. Uh, every once or twice a week, we did what they call in Europe an open air, which was an outdoor concert. Hundred thousand people. There used to be. We used to open. There used to be like they added a few acts and then Queen. But how, um, how was it for you guys, Sandy, opening for Queen? How, how were the audiences? Were they the accepting? Audience, the audiences were very, very accepting. Um, uh, you know, Brian came into our dressing room after the first gig and said he had his guitar on during the set change and he was ready to go on. He goes, welcome to the tour, man. You guys sounded really, really good. If you have any issues, come and see me. And by the way, the record company, I think it was EMI, the record company in our first night in each new town, they throw us a party. You guys are invited to every party. Just show your laminate. My road manager will tell your road manager where the party is. They close a restaurant or a disco, a private and we go and I went to when whenever we didn't have to leave overnight because I said and that was a lot of times because I said that we played two or three nights in each place wow. so we were able to it was awesome I was able to see Europe go out during the day Brian May I used to go and hang out and the Brian was the guy principally who I hung out with and I remember his drink of choice was a Tanqueray and tonic and I knew that because <laughs> I'm going, what is that drink? Because it glows in the dark. Every time he got under a black light, it would glow in the dark. And he goes, it's Tanqueray and Tonic. So anyway, Brian and Roger Taylor was there almost every party. Um, Freddie used to show up maybe once or twice a week. But after about two weeks of these parties, Brian goes to me, hey, Sandy, did you ever meet, did you ever meet Freddie? And I said, no. He goes, come on, I'll introduce you to Freddie. So... I go over, he had a security with him, even though it was a private party, his boyfriend was there. And he was right. A, he was soft-spoken, a little bit of an overbite, and he shook my hand like one of those where he shakes your hand, then he puts his other hand over your hand, and he shakes your hand with two hands. And he says, Welcome to the tour. And I go, hey, thank you so much, Freddie. It's such an honor to be, to be on the same stage with you. It's just, he goes, you're not from Germany. And I said, no, heck, I know. I'm from New York City. He goes, oh, man, I remember. And he started going, I remember playing the garden. And, blah, blah. and he was bringing up places in New York, the restaurant. Hey, did you ever hear of this restaurant? He was so open and so genuine. Wow. I said, Freddie, listen, I love to take pictures. 
would you mind if I came up on stage at one of your shows and just, he goes, yeah, just make sure you wear your laminate so you don't get thrown off stage and make sure you're out of the view of the audience. So I went ahead and took a picture. Can I go ahead and show you the picture I took of Freddie? Please. Oh my God, are you kidding? So I go over with my Nikon and he, he, you know, the stage right, that's where he had the grand piano facing stage right. And the end of the, it was a nine foot Yamaha grand piano. And at the end of the, the end of the piano was out with the, there was a curtain, like a scrim there. So I was able to put my camera on the end of the piano wow. waiting for the moment where he came over and played, I paid my dues. <laughs> and this is the picture I took of Freddie. Oh, Sandy. Wow. The glasses and he had that little that little Admiral jacket with the, wow. with the oh man, that was such I'm telling you, Vicky, that was one of the highlights of you. Nobody ever heard of the band Kraft, German <laughs> band, but they sang in American and, and that was a highlight of my of my of my career basically. Doing three months in Europe head, opening wow. for food. Wow. How accurate was the movie that came out two years ago? It was it was accurate. It just didn't do it didn't do as deep of a dive into certain situations as the what was reality. I mean, you saw you saw his room the morning after a party and it was all, you know, the morning after a debauchery party. But it that that wasn't a seldom occurrence that happened quite often. But you know that you know this is i'm not here to air any dirty laundry they're they're like classic people and i love those people to death and um and when they, when they came with adam lambert to bridgestone here in nashville i went yeah. i went with kip winger because kip winger and i were friends with spike edney uh -huh. who spike edney is the musical director still to this day me and spike were on the road in 80 in 86 with queen and now he's still the, the musical director with um, Adam Lambert in the band, and we did some fantasy camps together. So when they came, when Queen came with Adam Lambert to Nashville, I went and uh, and saw Spike and whatever. And, um, and and Spike, after a little while in the green room, said, "Me and Kip, you have to leave your wives here, but you and Kip come with me." So me and Kip followed Spike into this other room away from everybody. And there was Brian and Roger Taylor having a quiet little dinner in a room, nobody, nobody else. And uh, Rod, Brian didn't recognize me, but I explained that he remembered the tour. It was a, the magic tour of 86. Mm -hmm. But Roger did one of those, uh, you know, he, he recognized <laughs> my face, didn't know my, didn't remember my name right. or what, how he knew me, but the face looked familiar to him. But I got some before and after pictures that, uh, you know, I put two pictures side by side, me and Roger in 86 and me and Roger. Now oh, that's great. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> great memory, Vicky. I'm so thankful. I am so thankful and so grateful for the opportunities I've been given. Um, it's just an amazing. An you know, amazing. I think, Sandy, I think gratitude is every I, I think that, you know, I've read your book and, and I we're going to get to that. But I think your gratitude for everything each step of the way is what brings more goodness to your life. I yeah I, it does it does it, it, and it's not just me everybody anybody that felt you know pays it forward and and you know because I, I without getting too philosophical i think that's the way we're going to be judged is basically how we not not how much money we made no nobody nobody's going to have their checking account balance thank god 
<laughs> but it's how I think we're going to be judged based upon how we made other people feel mm -hmm. when they crossed our paths. How we, when they engage with us or we engage with them, how did we make them feel when they walk away from that conversation or that encounter? And that means, you know, when you're in Ralph's in L.A., you, you look at the name tag on the, somebody that's scanning your groceries and just say hi. How mm -hmm. you doing today, uh, Randy? You know, whatever. And it could be that little insignificant, seemingly insignificant thing, or it could be giving somebody life changing advice. It Absolutely. comes back. You, it's call, it's, you know, it's call and answer. It's, uh, it's, um, you know, cause and effect. It's for every action, there's a reaction. It's a law of the universe. It's not mm -hmm. something that's my opinion. It's a law. And what you send out, negative or positive is going to come back and hit you in your ass. <laughs> okay, so speaking of getting hit in the ass, so <laughs> what happened with Cindy? How did, what happened there? Well, it's, it's kind of a long story, um, but um, basically, just generally speaking, Cindy and Dave, manager, had a ro romantic relationship. Um, this is what I get from it. They had a romantic relationship, and Dave was responsible for finding the band. And when the relationship didn't go well and they separated, then that's when anything that had to do with Dave, Dave was bye-bye. Cindy went bye-bye. So um, I don't know what, why they separated. I don't know why. They, they weren't married, but they, they were, I guess they were planning on getting married. I don't, know, I don't know what happened with the relationship. It's not for me to say. Um, there's speculation, but it's not for me to say. And I'm not going to definitely say it in a public forum. But um, so that's what, that's what, what, you know, and towards right. the end of that tour, we were, we were all promised by Cindy when everything was good and we were at the end of a multi-platinum five, you see the, uh, the album behind me, five times platinum. You know, we were, the band was, was, Cindy loved the band. And she said, for the second album, you guys are going to play on it. You guys are going to have your own merchandise deal. I'm going to have, it was, you're going to have your own band name, Cindy Lauper and the whatever. You're welcome to comp contribute songs. You're going to play on the whole record. And we started out as Sidemen and we went to the bar after that meeting and we, me and, uh, me and the band and we said, man, we started this gig as Sidemen. Now we're going to be, you know, not not equal partners, but we're going to have right. a little point on the record, a follow up to a five million seller. So then that was the that was the elation. And then I went on the road with Kraft, and I get a, a a call from my tour manager with Cindy saying she she let the whole band go because of her and Dave broke up. That's the story I got, and I'm going to have to stick with it. <laughs> okay, so now I, I have you ever? I gather you've never talked to Cindy about. I did. What? Oh no, no, not about not about that particular situation. Okay. When I was with Davy Jones, the Monkees, and when I was with Davy Jones, did a solo thing and played the Dallas State Fair. Let's say it was on a Friday night. I get a call from Davey. This is a Friday afternoon before we go to the sound check. And Davey's going, hey, Sandy, I see this guy in the lobby. He's bald. And he says he plays drums with Cindy. And they're in town. I go, what's his name? He goes, Sammy Marandino. Do you know Sammy Marandino? 
Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, so I don't know him personally. I know who he is. Yeah. We're, we were in town doing the Dallas, the Texas State Fair on a Friday. Cindy's in town on that Friday to do the Dallas State Fair on a Saturday. So long story short, I called Cindy in her room and I said, Cindy, listen, I'm with Davy Jones. Why don't you come to the gig? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Put my name on the list like as if he, I needed to put it on the list. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So I go to soundcheck and I tell the son. And, and Cindy went on to say to me, uh, hey, Sandy, I, I used to be a big fan of the Monkees, uh, and I, I had dreams of, and I tell this story in my concerts that Davy Jones, me and Davy Jones are walking along the beach and whatever. She <laughs> so I tell the sound man at Soundcheck at the Texas State Fair, I said, have a, a wireless mic ready on the side, on the monitor board, just in case. Right. In middle of Davy Jones' show, she comes and with a couple of her bandmates and uh, her road manager or whatever, and she's standing on the side of the stage and she's watching the show. It was awesome. Now the encore, Davy does the encore, Daydream Believer, and uh, Dave Alexander, rest his soul, he just died about three, four days ago. He plays the intro again, the and over that intro, just piano. Dave usually tells a little story about whatever and you know, whatever he does, it sets up the song. During that little interlude, I go sneak off, grab the um, wireless mic from the- You mic. haven't told him about Cindy? No, 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 I didn't tell Dave. No, I didn't tell Dave about Cindy. <laughs> that that she, she, he knew that he was in, she was in town. He right, right. He was coming to the gig. So I grabbed the microphone and I say, come on, come on, Lorpa. No, no, no. Come on, come on. So now I bring Cindy on stage. She's holding the mic. I bring Cindy on stage. The crowd erupts. <laughs> and he's still, the keyboard player still playing the intro. And Davey goes, oh, man, it's Cindy Lauper. The crowd goes crazy. <laughs> they end up doing a duet in the Daydream Believer. Wow. And, um she came backstage afterwards and posed for pictures and she, with her the members of her, her band that were there. And that was just an awesome night. I have a picture uh, I don't have it here, but I have a picture of me, Davey, and Cindy backstage. You know, at- you're going to have to come back because I know I only have you for 15 more minutes, but there's too much to talk about because, okay, so Davey played the Rock and Roll Cafe for me in 1988. And I'm were you with him? I mean, Davey no. played the Rock... He played the Rock and Roll Cafe. He played that tiny little club for me. But I had seen Davey as the Artful Dodger, my first Broadway show when I was Olive. a little girl, right? And then, and then, Mike, Mike ended up producing Women Who My Thing up at the Henry Miller Library, and then he rejoined the Monkees after Davey died. And then Mickey did. Anyway, we have a lot of things that. They go round oh, and round. Squirrely, that is squirrely, absolutely circle. right. Crazy. right. Okay. That's awesome. So now, this is the first time you're seeing Cindy since the gig fell apart. Um, I used to. I ran into her at SIR on Fifty Second Street every once in a while, like passing, and just it would be a polite wave. But after that gig, when she came and sang with Davy back at the hotel, we had a drink. Her and I sitting at a little two top had a drink. And uh, and we it was a private. Con- I don't want to talk about too much of the conversation. Right, right. But she was a very apologetic because we were the band at the time was under the impression that, you know, Cindy didn't want to hang with the band. She was always wanted to go back to straight to the hotel after the gig. And the band used to hang out together. We got along great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then she told me, she goes, you know what? Um, 
I I love the band. I you know I had nothing against the band. She she opened up and she said that basically it wasn't her doing. She was very she 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 was kept by management to be very kind of very sheltered. She didn't want mm. they didn't want her to be out and about and you know whatever people taking pictures or whatever. I I you know I I there's certain things that remain unsaid, but with that conversation that Cindy had with me, it was about maybe fifteen twenty minutes having a drink. It was just awesome. It was oh, great. That's so great. And I saw a picture of you recently, much more recently, just a few years ago with your family, you were with Cindy somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. When she comes to the, she comes to Bridgestone and every time, every chance I have to, to, to go see her, we do. She opened for Rod Stewart, for Rod Stewart <laughs> at, at Bridgestone. So we went, we went, we hung out backstage. She put me on the guest list or whatever. And, you know, I do these, uh, on occasion, I do these cancer benefits. I do one for Dana Farber in Boston. I do one for, you know, breast cancer uh, in Texas. And every time I do one of those, I, I call the artist that I used to work with and say, hey, would you mind sending me a signed picture just to raffle off just for cancer and whatever. And Cindy's always there with, sent me her book, you know, some swag and some T-shirts and album, Fabulous. whatever. Yeah, Joan does the same thing. Kenny Laguna. And okay, Joan. so now we're up to that. So, so you leave Cindy, and if you're going to go with another woman, what other woman is there to go with? How do you get the right. Joan gig? How does that well, happen? Well, the Joan gig happened uh, before the Joan gig. I went with the Monkees. I was with the Monkees in okay, 1987. Know this at the time? How did you get the monkeys gig? How I got the monkeys gig because at the China Club, this guy named Mark Clark used to play. He played bass with Billy Squire, a British guy. I yeah. And we used to jam and hang out at the manager's right. office at the China Club. Tommy Allen, yeah. Tommy Allen, and um, and so he ended up. Mark Clark ended up getting the musical director gig for the for the monkeys in 1987, I believe, or 86, 87. I'm not sure. And then he asked me to, to, when the drummer wasn't working out on the 86 tour, he asked me to join the band for 87 tour. And I went on the to tour in 87. And I was with them for almost every, I didn't do every reunion tour because after that 87, 88, I, at the end of 88, I ended up going with Joan. Right. And now how that happened, it was, a, again, the China Club came into play there because <laughs> I used to jam with Ricky Bird used to be there. And, right. you know, and Elliot, Elliot. Easton. No, no, no. no. That, that's the cause. Elliot. Yeah, Elliot, Elliot Easton Sal used to jam. Go ahead. But Elliot Saltzman, Elliot Saltzman was the road manager for Joan Jett. Okay. And I think he's still involved with Joan all these years later. But anyway, oh, I got. God. What, was, what was what was the name of John Iosa? Remember John Iosa? I just remember oh, John. Familiar. John was her like her best friend, like confidant. He actually died some years ago. But anyway, yeah. I was friends with John. Go ahead. So anyway, uh, Joan needed to make a drummer change, and I, they were on the road with a drummer, and um, his name was Tommy Price, and they needed to make a change for some reason. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I got a call from Elliot and said, "Hey, Sandy, where?" Now you uh, got a call from Elliot because of Ricky Burt. Was it because of Ricky? Well, because of Elliot knew I, who I was, and 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 Chasm was in the band at that time, and Chasm Sultan and I grew up on Staten Island together, <laughs> so I knew him for since I'm like 15. Tommy Price was in that same circle of friends on Staten right. Island. Earl Slick, Frank Mataloni, who played with Bowie, he was <laughs> in that same clique on Staten Island. It was awesome. So we all kind of knew each other. And when Joan needed to make a drummer change, Elliot Salzman called me and said, "Hey, listen, here's here's a board tape." 
uh, learn the songs. We're gonna we're coming through. We're on tour with Robert Plant. We're playing Washington D.C. on a Tuesday. Thursday we're playing Boston. We're gonna be passing through New York on a Wednesday. We'll meet you at the studio on 30th Street and we'll play play the first four songs on that re- on that uh, you know learn the tape the board tape. That's what happened. They came. We I auditioned. I played first the first four songs of the set uh, with Ricky and Chasm and Joan. And Joan turns around to me after the first first after the fourth song and says, "Everything you play on sounds like a fucking hit record." <laughs> well, anyway, she has a little tête-à-tête with Ken, with Kenny Laguna, and oh, yeah. they call me into the room and say, uh, "You know, you want to fly to Boston tomorrow? We're playing the, the Worcester the Worcester." Worcester Mass, the Centrum in Worcester Mass, opening for Robert Plant. You, you, are you in? I said, shit, am I in? Are you kidding? He goes, go back to Staten Island, pack up your drums. There'll be a truck there tonight to pick them up, and we'll see you wow, tomorrow. Wow, that was fast. Well, I flew up the next day, and I was with Joan for the next year and a half. Wow. It was awesome. It was just Joan. It was one of my, one of my most memorable gigs, too, because Joan and Kenny, they're still together and still thriving. They're still great. She ended up in the Hall of Fame, I think, 2015. And um, I don't have any. Go ahead. Was that, how was that ending for you? Was that okay or? It was okay. It was, uh, it was totally okay because uh, Kenny Laguna was totally transparent with me. He said, you know, Tommy has to go get healthy, uh, but he's, he's family. And so if he gets healthy, and comes back, he's going to have a chance to get the gig back. So you'll have the gig for as long as as long as you can have it. And but when he decides to come back, he may get the gig back. So this is no guarantee. For, uh, this is not a forever gig for you. So he was totally transparent. And um, it was December of '89. I did a Far East tour with Joan, and I think that January or February, Tommy ended up coming back, and he was with Joan for the next, you know, you know. So there was never any kind of issue between Tommy and I. I was to- he was totally transparent with me. Uh, Kenny was, and um, you know I spoke to Tommy about two weeks ago because I'm going. As I mentioned, I'm going to San Antonio, and he's going to hook me up with a drum set because I'm, I'm going to be playing drums in my presentation. And um, so we're still in touch and good. We're good friends, and you know that that's basically how the Joan gig ended. And then there's lots of monkey stuff and, and Mickey Dolan stuff and Davy Jones stuff that's going on. Through yeah, the and then 1990 was our, our friend Steve and John Conti and Keith Brewer with the, with the Company of Wolves. And just for everybody out there, Sandy doesn't even remember, he played my opening night with Company of Wolves at, at Rock Girl. And do, yeah, it doesn't remember being at my wedding in True Blue. It's all right. But those were days <laughs> where a lot of us don't remember a lot of things. So it's right. okay. Um, so, so Company of Wolves. Okay, so... And, you know, it's interesting because it really seemed like you guys were poised to, to break we all had, Yeah, we all had ho- high hopes on that because that was a great record. Tommy, uh, Frankie LaRocca, rest his soul, played on the record and I did the tour. Um, but it was all, what a, what a hot band that was, man. This Conti brothers, they're, 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 they're crazy. They're just awesome. And Keith Brewer, who I'm still in touch with, I'm still in touch with all of them, basically. Uh, Keith Brewer lives in Baltimore, and he was a great singer, played harp, and we did we did all the originals. Plus, we did "Tie Your Mother Down," and we did some of our favorite, uh, you know, cover Covers. songs. And we, we had a great time. The summer of '90 that was. So I know you've lost a couple of people, uh, just in, just just 
really recently. Um, I watched a video of you and Dave Alexander when Davey had you guys come out and do Archie and eat it. And uh, was that like a one-off that happened once or did no, 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 <laughs> no, it turned, we, we, me and I used to, I was a big fan of all in the family mm -hmm. and I knew that little story. I used, to, geez, I used to imitate Archie all the time. So we're in a van or in the back of a tour bus and I, and I, me and Dave, me and uh, Lofi, Dave Alexander, mm -hmm. he played the part of Edith and we did the little skit for Davey and he couldn't stop laughing for about 20 minutes. This is after about like four or five lemonades. And um, so that night on stage or the next night we're on stage, he goes, come down. So that that was the first time. And then that ended up to be like a like a nightly thing on, on especially in Davey's wow. solo shows. Once in a while on a monkey show, he would we would do it. But mostly on Davey's solo shows, we would do that skit and everybody loved it. And Dave Alexander was just um he just passed recently um just about three or four days ago he from cancer mm. so um yeah so and then a couple of weeks uh, not even a couple of weeks maybe a week before dave alexander passed my my buddy robin irvine who was the tour manager with with and he used to work at um jp's do you remember the club JP's? of course i remember JP's. First Avenue, he was the house sound man at jp's he ended up being with cindy from the beginning up until the basically the end wow and then, and then he went with foreigner he i got him the gig with the tour managing the monkeys gig and which you know i met my wife on cindy lauper's gig okay so tell us that story how did that happen well, it was basically, uh, you know, I was so nice to Dave in the doorway. That's how I got the Cindy Lauper's gig in the first place. And, and, and uh, you know, being nice to people can change your life. Well, how? Because on in 1984, Jan, uh, Feb, uh, November 23rd, 1984, we played the Charlotte Coliseum in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Sherry was there. We ended up meeting. I invited her to the show the next night at the, at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. She came. We saw each other long distance, all of 85, because she lived in Charlotte. And um, in 1980, November of 85, a year later, she moved up to New York. 1990, we got married. 1994, we had our daughter, Jerry. And uh, we're still together today, 30, I 30, love 30 that. I love that. Later. Now, the funny little turnaround there is that on the Monkey Tour in 1987, I recommended Robin Irvine, Cindy's tour manager, to tour manage the Monkeys. And on that 87 tour, he met the woman that ended up being oh. his wife. And, and, and to, to this day, that's who I was in touch with after after Robin passed. I, you know, I, I did a little video for them and whatever. So, so Mickey just asked um, another Mickey uh, what how the, it ended for the monkeys with you. And I think I know it's because date when it was when Davey passed, right? Davey that was passed when, and I left the band. And it's so weird because that's when my life with the monkeys started. That's I met Nez and I had known Mickey and then. Nez went back with the monkey anyway, so it's just weird how that happened. But okay, yeah. we only have, I only have Sandy for a couple more minutes because he has to do another show after this. But I want to talk about this. I want to talk about how did your life change, Sandy? I, this is a big question for a, a short amount of time. <laughs> what what made you go from being a drummer to also public speaking and writing a book? What, what, what was that okay. about? It, 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 it all comes around full circle. How, how What I say in the book treat everybody like a human being, you know, have a positive outlook on life. And I threw a drumstick and when I was back with Travers in 2010, mm -hmm. 
2015, I threw a drumstick to a handicapped person. I could have threw it to anybody in this 20,000-seat arena. I see, uh, during the encore, I see a handicapped person. I want her to have the drumstick. Mm-hmm. She, her face lit up. The next day, the husband uh, Facebook messaged me, says, Hey, man, I, I really want to thank you in person. You have no idea what you did for my wife. Uh, she started crying. It was tears in the, where nobody pays attention to her. She's handicapped. She's going to put the stick in a shadow box or whatever. I'm coming to Nashville to, to speak, this guy, the husband. Right. I want to thank you in person. Meet me for a coffee, please. I, could, I didn't have to meet him, but I met him. I told him the Dave in the Doorway story. He asked me how I got certain rock and roll gigs because he happened to be a rock and roll music fan. And he tells the story to to his speaking engagement subsequently. It got a good reaction. And he says, you know what? You have have no problem speaking in front of people because you've done clinics and you you taught at the Collective in New York or whatever. He says, you have a career as a public speaker and I'll help you any way I can. Now, a lot of stuff happened in between with me doing free speaking gigs at Chambers of Commerces and, you know, Rotary Clubs or whatever. But then it started building and it's been about... And also another, what you talk about in your book is that you do this one little thing that you do innocently to be of service and then boom, something boom. wonderful happens. Yeah. You never know. But the key is, uh, Vicki, you don't do it for anything in return you do it because it's the right thing to do you do it because you want to engulf that little flame inside of everybody which is the soul and that soul that little flame is what makes us different than a tulip (laughs) we're human beings we're human beings and we're all basically regardless of where we're from and what political affiliations we have what color we are blah 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 we're all the same and that little flame in my in my limited human mind believe that that little flame after we're pushing up daisies or we're in an urn on a, on a mantelpiece that little flame goes to the next level and reunites with the big bonfire in the sky which is all the other human beings and the big you know the higher power whatever you, what name you want to put on it that's how we're going to, and we're going to be judged by basically how we made other people feel Okay, so I have to let you go because I've kept you long, but it's called Beat the Odds in Business and in Life. And I'm going to end life and I'm going to put the 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 thing the link in the liner notes. And if you if you order it directly from Sandy, you get sticks with it, which is so cool. <laughs> and uh, Sandy, I just adore you. It has been so fun to see you again. And uh, we're going to have to do this again and get more stories. Gigi uh, Kulik is saying, Oh, Gigi. Oh, Gigi. I love you. Give my love to Brewski. And um, anyway, um, have have a great next time. And um, and I'm going to have you back. And it was great to see you. Thanks Anytime, so Vicky. I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's just awesome. Not only seeing you again, but reliving all those great times that we had in Manhattan. And uh and anytime, whenever you see fit, just just I'm get, having uh, you back. I'm having you back. And I'll be there. Is that a promise now? That's a promise. Okay. I'm gonna keep you to that promise, Vicky. I will. Take Thank care. Thank you Sandy. so much, Thanks Vicky. So much. Love you, honey. Love you. Bye bye.